0: Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Matcuff. This week, uh, I'm joined by Dmitry Suslov, the Deputy Director uh, of the Faculty of World Economy and International Affairs at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, uh, who's also affiliated with the Center for Foreign and Defense Policy, the Valdai Discussion Club, and lots of other organizations. Uh, he recently joined us at CSIS, where he gave a presentation on the future of the US-Russia relationship, uh, which you can find on our website. Uh, we're going to continue that discussion uh, today on the podcast. And we're going to cover a whole range of things, some of which uh, Dima covered in in his public presentation, and some of which he didn't. Uh, so we hope you'll listen and enjoy. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm joined today by Dmitry Suslov uh, from the High School of Economics. Dmitry, welcome to Russian Roulette. Hello. Thank you, Jeff. So, uh, President Trump and President Putin recently met uh, in Osaka. Um, I don't think many of us were expecting dramatic outcomes from the meeting. Um, How do you assess it? And, And more importantly, how does the Russian government assess it?
1: Well, I think that the Russian government assessed that as an indicator that Trump is now uh, a little bit more independent in his steps towards Russia after the conclusion of the Mueller investigation and the statement that there was no collusion. Uh, this a little bit unties uh, Trump's hands in in the interaction with Russia, and he decided to use this newly acquired foreign policy relative, although independence um uh in order to try to um, uh, you know to cooperate <laughs> to have a dialogue uh, with uh, with Russia. You know the thing is that Trump does not consider Russia as the major adversary against the United States. He does not consider Russia as the uh, ideological threat uh, against the United States, and uh, these create some positive preconditions. There were some burning issues for Trump and Putin to address. Uh, I think at the Osaka uh, meeting, including Venezuela, Syria. Uh, and arms control. Um, however, uh am there... not sure we made progress on any of them. But... Yeah, we didn't make progress on many of them. Uh, and that's also one of the major concerns that Russia has, that despite the um, the ability to talk more intensively and basically to talk more, uh, despite the some movements uh, in the strategic stability talks between Russia and the uh, United States, you know, one of the results of that meeting was to intensify uh, strategic stability stability, uh, strategic stability talks, uh, there are uh, almost no expectations about quick results. Uh, because uh, the interests of the sides and the approaches of the sides, they remain very different on uh, the majority of these issues and basically on all of the issues that I mentioned. Uh, and also the United States is entering has already entered the new election campaign. Uh, and in this election campaign, there are very few things that you can do with the United States. So
0: you mentioned a couple of areas where there was discussion um, in Osaka. What would progress in any of them like? I mean on strategic stability, I think the idea just that you keep talking um, right. as the INF treaty goes away, as we start thinking about the future of the New START treaty, just mm-hmm. talking is in some ways progress. Um, on the other issues though, on on Venezuela, I don't have a lot of hope on that one, on Syria. I mean, is there some prospect for things to change or is this just kind of discussion to make sure that we don't get into a dangerous situation?
1: I would slightly disagree on strategic stability. I think that uh, one of the reasons why Russia... Um, um, uh, pursued that meeting with Trump at Osaka is because Russia really hopes to get some concrete things, uh, some progress uh, mm-hmm. on strategic stability track. Uh, and these include first preservation of the INF regime, mm-hmm. even without the treaty. Even without the treaty, especially a clear commitment of both sides that they will that they are not going to deploy these missiles in Europe. Mm-hmm. Right. That's m- that w- mm-hmm. what concerns Russia uh, 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 in the short-term prospect, right? Because if there are deployments of the uh, intermediate-range uh, nuclear-armed or nuclear-capable missiles, especially in, in central and eastern Europe, uh, the situation might deteriorate dramatically, right. and Russia will be compelled to adopt the preemptive strike doctrine officially. So, uh, preservation of n- of the regime and commitment not to deploy these missiles at the European theater, uh, which is challenging in its uh, and problematic in its own sake, because the U.S. officially claims that Russia has is, already it is already deploying yeah the, 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 the these types of missiles in uh, in Europe so we but, but we need to come to an, a, a conclusion that you know there won't be uh, mm-hmm. these uh, deployments on the US side especially in the, in Central and Eastern Europe and there won't be large-scale uh, deployments right well I mean this gets to the inherent problem
0: or the inherent difficulty of of the whole INF regime yes. which is that for Russia this is about the homeland for the United States this is about extending a deterrence. And yeah, there are different stakes in some
1: ways. Absolutely. And we have a mixture and entanglement of strategic and non-strategic weapons, because as Russia claims time and again, the use of non-strategic nuclear weapons against Russia will result in the Russian strategic nuclear strike against the United States. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 second uh, immediate thing that Russia wants from strategic stability talks with the Trump administration and what Russia wanted to achieve some progress on uh, in Osaka is certainly prolongation of the new start. The new start now is the only surviving anchor uh, of transparency, predictability. Right, uh, it's, it's not
0: only the numerical limitations it's that you have the verification. But
1: Russia features. is no longer concerned about numerical limitations. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Russia claims that with the emergence of this newest. Exotic weapons, the hypersonic gliders, mm-hmm. super torpedoes, and so on and so forth. Right. Russia is no longer interested in preserving even uh, numerical parity with the uh, United States. So, if the Trump administration decides to triple the number of nuclear weapons, welcome, I mean, and we will not uh, replicate the U.S. We won't behavior. get in the but way of
0: you spending lots of money yeah. on systems that you can't use.
1: Absolutely. But uh, what Russia is really concerned about, and I think what the people in Pentagon also are concerned, is the transparency and mm-hmm. reduction. Because this is what we need to avoid an unintentional nuclear war. Thus, we need to prolong the new start and use the five years uh, between uh, 2021 and 2026 for elaboration of the new approaches and new regimes in arms control and strategic stability that would reflect the fundamentally changed military strategic environment. But even if we don't extend the new start, and I think that the latest statement by Joseph Biden really aggravated, diminished the chances of its prolongation by the Trump administration, right, because Trump says that he, uh, sorry, Biden said that if he wins the presidential elections, he will extend the new start. Uh, you know, this compels Trump to take the opposite position. So in the Russian perspective, the statement of Biden mm-hmm. is not really helpful for the prolongation of the, uh, of the new start. So but, but nevertheless, Russia is interested to at least preserve the regime of transparency. Uh, Russia would want to convince the United States that we need that and that uh, the new start is a helpful agreement and so on and so forth. So these could be the achievements. So if we talk about achievements, prolongation of the new start could be the major achievement or commitments to the regime of transparency and predictability enshrined Mm -hmm. in this treaty is the indication of success of strategic stability negotiations.
0: Right. With the caveat that it may not be the Trump administration that makes that decision. If they haven't made a decision by the time of the election assuming they lose, then this falls to the new administration to make a decision. So I think it's fully possible that we won't know one way or the other whether a new start is going to be prolonged until right. very shortly before the deadline for that decision to be made.
1: Absolutely. Uh, beyond that, we just need to have general consultations about the uh, strategic stability. We should exchange our assessments of the shifts of the military strategic environment, mm-hmm. the role of the third parties, the increasing entanglement of nuclear and non-nuclear strategic weapons. What should be the definition of strategic environment, uh, and should we basically keep the term? As far as I know, mm-hmm. the Trump administration and isn't even keeping not. the term, right. uh, and so on. Well, so I think forth. there
0: are different. I think there are very different interpretations of. The concept in the United States and Russia, which again has something to do with the geographic locations, but also yes. the nature of the systems that they rely on. You know, when the US wants to talk about strategic stability, it's often interested in what Russia is doing with what Russia calls non-strategic nuclear weapons. So figuring out how all of these different pieces relate to each other, there is very much substance that one could have in these strategic stability talks if the political will on both sides is there.
1: Absolutely. But I think that we both agree, both Russia and the United States agree that the strategic environment has changed and continues to change in a very fundamental way.
0: Even if we don't agree how.
1: Even if we don't agree how, but we should agree how because our failure to agree on this increases the risks of unintentional war resulting or escalating to in, uh, to the use of nuclear weapons, which is the basically something that we agree we both should void by uh, by all means.
0: Right. It, it is. I think that is the fundamental danger here, is that because we're in a period of shifts and transitions, there's not as clear an understanding on either side of what the other's strategic objectives are, of what the other side's red lines are, what the other side's strategies for escalation are. Uh, and that means that even though neither Washington nor Moscow has any interest in fighting a nuclear conflict, the potential for some kind of non-nuclear dispute to escalate in ways that neither side is prepared for is – I wouldn't say high, but is more real than it would have been, say, a decade ago.
1: Yes, uh, and some people in Russia consider these risks even higher than in the previous Cold War, uh, because in the uh, previous Cold War we knew the rules of the game.
0: Well, we did after, say, the Cuban Missile
1: Crisis. Yes, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, precisely uh, in the phase of mature Cold War. Uh, now we lack the clear understanding of the rules of the game. Uh, moreover, in the times of the Cold War, nuclear weapons were the only means to inflict unacceptable damage uh, of strategic significance of each other. Today we have enormous number of things and uh, we can dangerously miscalculate the policies and the resolve and the risk assessments uh, of each other, and thus uh, find ourselves in the state of nuclear war, which we, which we want to avoid. This is precisely why we should talk uh, on these issues, uh, uh, you know, despite all the uh, differences in terminology, in approaches, uh, and so on and so forth. As for other conflicts, Well, I think there are uh, still areas uh, where our interests more or less converge, or at least partly converge. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I don't think that uh, the United States still considers Afghanistan and preservation of the U.S. military presence in wider Central Asia as a huge strategic priority for for the U.S., I, I think that the strategy that the Trump administration and probably the next administration will will pursue is exit strategy, uh, and uh, both the U.S. and Russia and China, by the way, are interested in a stable. Uh, Afghanistan not controlled by any radical Islamist uh, regime, and not as a black hole of fa- st- failed state and the source of right uh, of terrorism. I mean,
0: I, I think ironically, this is an area where the U.S. has very much come around to a view that Russia had several years ago—that yes. the Taliban is—you may like them or dislike them, but that they're very much part of the solution in Afghanistan, and that any. Exit strategy is going to involve working with the Taliban to facilitate some kind of orderly or more or less orderly yes. transition
1: i can't say that there is no competition between Russia and the United States when it comes to Afghanistan because yes, Russia wants the political resolution to be uh, to happen under the Russian auspices, whereas mm-hmm. the u s wants that to be on the u s auspices but basically we pursue similar strategies, which is political reconciliation with Taliban, but uh, without the restoration of the status quo of 1996, you know, with the Taliban uh, victory and the Taliban attempts to establish the caliphate, basically in in Afghanistan and beyond Afghanistan. So we 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 can cooperate there, and there is an exchange, quite intensive exchange, by the way, and dialogue between Russia and the United States uh, on Afghanistan. North Korea could be another option especially after the lack of immediate progress on the part of the Trump administration to resolve. And to sign a big deal know, with Yeah, to Kim sign Jong-un. a big deal with, with, with Kim. Now that the Trump administration understands that it lacks, you know, the magic stick, uh, which would allow it to, to have an immediate deal, uh, there, there is a growing understanding that a multilateral so- solution is necessary with the participation of Russia and China. Uh, and uh, Russia may be uh, a very crucial component of, the, of this multilateral uh, solution. On Syria, uh, I think we, we also can agree on some political transition in Syria, which would be acceptable for both sides and for Israel. Uh, because Israel factor is of extreme importance for the U.S. policy uh, in Syria, if the United States basically recognizes the realities of uh, uh, Russian victory, uh, in, <laughs> well, uh, in, that would in, in Syria. Mm, that would
0: make the bilateral relationship a lot easier in many places.
1: But Absolutely, of course, yes. it comes with other costs. Yeah, so if we change our. Discussion about Syria from uh, Russian victory versus the US victory, preservation of Assad regime versus the uh, collapse uh, or change of Assad uh, regime to.
0: Well, uh, I think the U.S. has come around to the fact that Assad is not going anywhere, and has for yes, a couple but of years the U.S.
1: Now. fails to legitimize that. Yes, of course. I mean, what the Trump administration did is uh, the seize of policies uh, focused on the toppling down of Bashar Assad, because the Obama administration, up until the very end, tried to pursue the policies aimed at the collapse of Assad's regime. Uh Trump administration is not doing that, but at the same time, it fails to. Re- Recognize to legitimize the Assad regime, thus uh, no possibilities for reconstruction, thus, uh, you know, preservation of the U.S. military presence beyond the Ephratus River, still partially because of these geopolitical reasons not to allow Assad to reestablish control over his whole territory, and so on and so forth. Yeah,
0: well, I I agree that at the macro level, right? The US and Russian approaches to Syria don't conflict as much as they've sometimes been made out to. Yeah. Um, neither side is interested in the collapse of the Syrian state. Sure. neither's interested in the expansion of jihadist organizations in or out of Syria.
1: And neither side is interested in Israeli's deep dissatisfaction and in an Iranian-dominated Syria. This is yeah. also the place of where we yeah. could find certain agreements. Yeah. And I think the latest meeting in Jerusalem uh the tripartite one mm-hmm. between Russia, the U.S. and Israel, Israel at the level mm-hmm. of the heads of uh, security councils is a huge step forward in that direction. Yeah,
0: I think that's right. I, I think where the challenge comes in is, you know, you talk about recognizing or legitimizing Assad. I don't know what that means in, in practical terms, but often around here when it gets discussed in practical terms, that means paying for reconstruction. And... I think there's very little chance that the U.S. or the Europeans are going to pump significant amounts of money into rebuilding an Assad-run Syria. Um, I think that's just the the political reality. They I may agree. they may have to hold their nose and deal with Assad, but I don't think they're going to take steps that are seen in Washington or in Brussels or Berlin as as rewarding Assad uh, well, or I th- I paying th- Russian companies to fix I the I think it will
1: depend ultimately on two factors. Uh, factor number one uh, is the approach of regional allies and partners of the United States. Uh, because if countries like Egypt, uh, and Jordan and some other Arab countries uh, re-establish ties with Damascus, which is with the Assad regime. It will be much more difficult for the United States still fail, uh, st- still refuse to uh, to talk to him. And second Well, the United
0: States might tell those
1: countries to pay for reconstruction then. Yeah. But they, but they won't. <laughs> Obviously, when, when we talk about reconstruction uh, of Syria, we mean the West. You know, one of the reasons for the success of Russian foreign policy is that Russia is not paying for the countries where Russia operates, right? Unlike the Soviet Union, which Mm -hmm. did pay. Yeah, well, but there's
0: a recognition of that in the United States, and I don't (laughs) think there's much interest in the United States in paying for the countries where Russia's operating Sure.
1: (laughs) But uh, secondly, uh, it depends on the future of political transition uh, in Syria, because Russia is sincere uh, when it claims that it doesn't want to keep Assad in power forever. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's Uh, right. That Russia wants a political change uh, in Syria, but the change which is originating from which has to come from within. Yeah, uh, not imposed from the uh, Mm -hmm. by the West and from the uh, outside. So if we agree on the terms and the future. Uh, of political transition in Syria then probably we could uh, basically resolve this issue and uh, agree on the on uh, on the reconstruction on Syria and on the western money well th- that's uh, and assuming so on and yeah, so forth. I mean so th-
0: there's the US Russia piece of this which I don't disagree with you on. There's a wider context to it, too. Um, and that includes the Iranians, yes. among others.
1: Um, and that includes def- the Assad regime, too, yeah, which is, which no, is not, not 100% uh, dependent on the Russian political will. Yeah. right. And uh, certainly uh, Assad thinks that he has nearly won this war, and why mm-hmm. should he change? Uh, and allow some, uh, you know, uh, re- fundamental reforms in uh, in the country that he has reestablished control of, or right. nearly reestablished, or could you, you even
0: have the reg- the regime? You know, in the past we talked about getting rid of Assad and keeping the regime. I'm not right. sure you can even do that.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Russia cannot go too far in pressuring uh, uh, Assad because that would undermine the Russian positions in Syria. So, yes, there are problems with the Russian deliverability on uh, on these issues, but I don't think that this problem is irreconcilable. I think that we can come uh, to some uh, solutions. And by the way, the regional players, such as Israelis, who don't care about Assad but who care about right. Iran, uh, might well they care might, about stability.
0: Actually, the, yeah. the Israelis don't mind Assad, given Absolutely. what some of the alternatives might
1: Absolutely. be. Absolutely. This is why Russia was very uh, optimistic about these uh, tripartite meetings with mm-hmm. uh, with Israel's. And this is very typical of Russia. You know, we consider Iran, our crucial partner, but it doesn't prohibit us, uh, doesn't prevent us. Right. From... The, the Israelis, <laughs> they, they can do what they want yeah. they, or they have Absolutely. to do. I'm less optimistic about the uh, Ukrainian track, uh, yeah. which is the uh, which is basically where the U.S.-Russian confrontation started, mm-hmm. uh, and which remains very crucial for the uh, for the U.S.-Russian relations. You know, unlike the situation in Syria, I I, I see U.S.-Russian policies vis-à-vis Ukraine as very contradictory and irreconcilable. Of course, Russia. Uh, wants to undermine the political status quo which emerged in Ukraine in 2014 with the encouragement and support of the United States. And that remains the Line, you know, the major priority of what Russia does uh, vis-à-vis Ukraine, whereas the U.S. on the contrary wants to preserve that uh, that status quo. I think it's clear that uh, the U.S. will not provide Ukraine with security guarantees and will not no. take obligations to defend Ukraine from uh, from uh, the Russian aggression, outright uh, aggression, if it happens. Although I don't think it will happen, but uh, the U.S. will do everything possible to preserve Ukraine and the pro-Western uh, trajectory, and to preserve basically the uh, the consensus, the foreign policy consensus, pro-Western one, uh, which emerged in Ukraine I- in 2014, whereas Russia wants to dismantle that. And uh, the Minsk agreements uh, are considered by Russia as a means, uh, mm-hmm. and the continuation of the conflict in Donbass is considered by Russia as a means to eventually dismantle that foreign policy consensus compel Ukraine to adopt a new constitution and to pursue a more balanced foreign policy. Yeah.
0: And th- this is, I think, the place where, as we were talking about during the public event, the expectation in both Washington and Moscow that they have time on their side yes. really becomes problematic. Absolutely, uh, Because Ukraine is on the front lines of those competing timelines. I will say, though, that there's one other aspect to this, and that is the Ukrainians themselves. Um, obviously, Ukraine is going through a political transition um, that has already seen it reject the extremely pro-Western views of the previous administration. Mm -hmm. It's a little unclear at this point what – the people around Zelensky have as a, a kind of foreign policy vision for Ukraine. But it's certainly one that's more, if not nuanced, at least more muddled than um, was the case with Poroshenko. Now, that being said, if the US and Russian visions for Ukraine's foreign policy orientation are diametrically opposed, and there's no overlapping set. Then it doesn't matter what happens in Kiev; um, it's still going to be a source of of conflict and confrontation. If, on the other hand, both sides are willing to, uh, you know, find uh, some areas of overlap that's acceptable to. A Ukrainian government led by a figure like Zelensky, mm-hmm. then you know maybe if there's going, I, I'm not optimistic on Ukraine. It's hard to be optimistic about Ukraine, but if there's going to be some progress, I think we're more likely to see it in the next six months than we are to see it than we were to see it before the elections, or that we're going to be likely to see it after.
1: Yeah, you are absolutely right that uh, Russia considers time be on its side, uh, because the Russian interpretations of the latest presidential elections in Ukraine is that attempts to make Ukraine as anti-Russia, to turn Ukraine into a sort of anti-Russia fail. And to that, turn Ukraine into Poland. Right, maybe. to turn Ukraine into Poland or bigger Lithuania. I mean, Lithuania would be perhaps more appropriate because <laughs> it's a post-Soviet country. So Ukrainians do not want to become another uh, Lithuania. They do not support becoming anti-Russians, uh, and the fact that well, some of them do. Is Ukraine some of them, is, but that's that, that's much. Ukraine is Yes, you're absolutely right, but that's a not a majority. You know the yes. fact that uh, Poroshenko was defeated with such enormous numbers, and that explicitly pro-Russian uh, politicians in Ukraine still got quite a lot. In, despite the ongoing war, despite Crimea, despite everything in the uh, Ukraine, uh, in the uh, Russian-Ukrainian relations, makes Russia quite optimistic, and al- uh, already now uh, we have some parallel tracks, some some independent. Uh, policies from Ukraine, championed by Medvedchuk and Boyko, the the most pro-Russian uh, political figures in Ukraine, to try to negotiate a trade, a, a gas contract deal, and you know the energy deal between Russia and Ukraine. The big question is how much are they related to Zelensky? Whom do they represent? Just themselves, mm-hmm. or there is a tacit understanding that a Russia policy is kind of outsourced uh, to them and then Kiev, after parliamentary elections and the emergence of the new Duma, ratifies what they negotiate with Moscow. So you know there are reasons for the uh, for the Russian optimism. There are also things on which we can certainly agree including, I think, President Zelensky, is uh, uh, is a tacit agreement that Ukraine will not become a member of NATO in the observable future. Of yeah. course, I understand this. There's a tacit
0: understanding of that tacit. in yeah.
1: this town, too. True. I mean, uh, and by the way, the fact that the U.S. Congress uh, started to discuss some alternative ways mm-hmm. uh, of strengthening relations with Ukraine, such as providing it with the status of major, major non-NATO, non-NATO NATO ally. Uh, ally, which is empty, so we, we, which is, you know, just mm-hmm. a medal on your chest yeah. without that, any legal yeah. responsibilities it means
0: we can sell you weapons more cheaply
1: yes but but not taking defense obligations right? So uh, it already is a clear signal that uh, Ukraine will not become a member of NATO. The same same as Georgia. Problem is how do we resolve the conflict in Donbass? And again, it is very unlikely that Russia will accept resolution of the conflict in Donbass without explicit, real and clear changes in Ukrainian domestic and foreign policy. And then the problem is can we create some changes uh in Ukrainian and foreign domestic politics that would satisfy all sides including Ukrainians uh including Ukrainians themselves yeah i think
0: for the us that's ultimately where the the red line is i think it's less about Ukraine joining NATO or Ukraine being an anti-Russia or whatever you want to call it, but it's Ukraine being a sovereign state. Um, And if the Ukrainians are on their own initiative going to take decisions that they see as being in their best interest that may or may not entail NATO membership, that's Ukraine's business. Now, I think there are some people in the US, including in Congress, who would not be happy with that, outcome. But I think, especially with an administration like this one, um, I think if you have a solution that is accepted and embraced by a majority of the Ukrainian public and by the Ukrainian leadership, we're not going to stand in the way of it.
1: I think we are coming to the fundamental contradiction of US-Russian relations, which is our disagreement about the rules of the game and major norms of international Mm -hmm. relations, including what's sovereign. Including who is sovereign. Yes, including who is sovereign, because in the Russian eyes... Uh, Ukrainian foreign policy uh, since 2014, and Ukraine since 2014 was not, and and remains to be not a sovereign state. Right? Uh, That the foreign policy decisions that the Ukrainian government started to uh, champion after 2014 did not reflect the opinion of the overwhelming majority of the Ukrainian people, and the latest elections proved that. that well, I think opinion those opinions of the minority. Well, I think those opinions are subject
0: to change. The government that was taking those decisions after 2014 came to power amid a war with Russia yeah. uh, and a diminution of its territory, and I think their views were in some ways radicalized by those events. Now, whether yeah. they stayed radicalized, given what's happened and since is hard to say. I mean, I I think you can read the most recent presidential elections in Ukraine a number of ways. To me, what it looks like is they were frustrated with the inability of the Poroshenko government to address quality of life issues corruption just sort of basic governance issues that, that had less to do with US foreign Russia relations issues, or yeah. NATO than they did with people's everyday lives
1: Absolutely but uh pro-western and anti-russian foreign policy initiatives proclaimed and pursued by Poroshenko do not compensate for the absence of uh, you know social standards of life yeah, and so I on I think and that's so why
0: Poroshenko was defeated
1: But coming back to our disagreements about sovereignty I think there are two things there where were US and Russia are unlikely to agree. First, it is the limitations on sovereignty and on foreign policy options for the post-Soviet countries. Because uh, Russian perception of a multipolar world uh, and the rules in conditions of multipolarity imply that there should be certain uh, limits uh, on the foreign policies of the Russian neighbors. Uh, And it is, in the Russian perception, a normal thing in a multipolar world. For instance, the United States would also not accept full and complete independence and sovereignty of its neighbors, Mexico and Canada, uh, if their foreign policy independence results to Uh, Mexico and Canada creating military alliances with uh, uh, American adversaries, right? For instance, uh, Mexico uh, agreeing, uh, creating a military alliance with China, right? Will the United States tolerate that? Probably no, right? Uh, So it is normal for uh, great powers to demand Uh, Friendly environment. And uh, the only foreign policy limitation that Russia is basically trying to impose is to make sure that, with the exception of the Baltic states, uh, post Soviet countries, including Ukraine uh, and Georgia. Do not join uh, the other alliances uh, and do not join the other integrationist frameworks. That they, they, they might stay independent. They might stay non-aligned like Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, you know, uh, and Turkmenistan, but they should not join others. That's a very important thing, and, uh, and it is difficult for, uh, for the U.S. to accept it. And secondly, uh, Russia sincerely thinks that many of the foreign policy options that the United States depicts as independent and sovereign from those countries actually result from American foreign policy preferences. Right. That uh, or uh, the the, the other Western countries indicators that this can be done. Right. If NATO had not proclaimed the open door policy, for instance, and if some NATO member states uh, after enlargement uh, uh, of 2004 had not claimed that Uh, Ukraine should join NATO. Um, uh, The the, the, the Ukrainians themselves would not have uh, pursued the uh, NATO membership option. So so many foreign policy steps that Ukraine and Georgia claim uh, uh, that U.S. regards as their independent foreign policy options in the Russian eyes are actually not very much independent, that they are encouraged uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, by the United States and by the West at large. In the Russian perception, the real independent foreign policy option of Ukraine was to sit on two chairs, as uh, as Yanukovych uh, wanted. Right, he he wanted a simultaneous integration with the West. And preservation of uh, uh, very close and intensive relations with Russia. But it was the West, actually, not Russia, who told him that this is impossible and that Ukraine must choose. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, the the way that a customs union works, you can't be in an economic union with another country if you're in a customs union that doesn't permit this. So in part, it was the way that the institutions were structured. At the same time, I think the larger point that you make is is right, which is that the United States is not going to accept a system where um, it recognizes some countries as being less than fully sovereign. Now, de facto, of course. We all realize that there are big powers, and there are medium-sized countries, and there are smaller countries, and that, you know, as, as Thucydides might have put it, the the strong do what they can, and, and the weak accept what they must. Yeah. The whole basis of U.S. foreign policy in the post Cold War or in the post World War II era mm-hmm. has been to mitigate that reality to the extent possible. And there are shifts underway in U.S. thinking about foreign policy, about the nature of international order, but. At the same time, I think as a principle, that idea of rules and sovereignty – or of rules guaranteeing the sovereignty of smaller states remains fundamental to the way that the US thinks about – the international system. Now that, as long that, as that it of course
1: coincides with American well, preference. Right. I was going to say that
0: doesn't mean that the U.S. has always upheld that in practice, yeah. and it has not twisted it for its own benefits. That, but we're, we're talking about pra- we're talking about the practical applications here. Yeah. And I think practically speaking, the United States is not going to give up support for that principle specifically as it applies to countries in the former Soviet region.
1: And Russia exploits that uh, in its relations with some allies and partners of the United States, yeah, right? Look sure. at the uh, mm-hmm. U.S.-Turkish dispute about mm-hmm. S-400s. Right. Again, Russia claims that Turkey as a sovereign country, right, uh, must have a right, you know, mm-hmm. to uh, establish military and security cooperation with whom, whomever it wants. And there is nothing in NATO charter that prohibits NATO allies from purchasing weapons from other countries, right? So why does the US uh, claims that Turkey must do it? And why does the US claims that Turkey must choose? Well, because the US has a sovereign choice in this too. And it argues that what (laughs) Turkey is
0: doing is counter to American interests. Now, again, we can argue that this is true. The same
1: thing, you know, so so, so this is precisely why Russia claims that it is normal for for great powers to demand for some exceptional role mm-hmm. and for the allies and for smaller countries of these great powers to accept certain limitations on their foreign policy behavior.
0: Yeah. I, I've made the point in, in public events before that, um, you know, Carl Schmidt, um yeah. has the discussion of sovereignty where he says, you know, sovereignty is about exceptions, that the one who's sovereign is the one who gets to make the exception. Uh, and in some ways, that's what the dispute between the United States and Russia is about is who gets to make an exception to the rules. Um, right. The US for most of the last 30 years as a fully sovereign, great power has made the rules and made the exceptions to the rules, um, as I think – Just about everybody, even in Washington, acknowledges that we've done it various times, like in invading Iraq. What Russia is demanding, it seems to me, is the recognition that as a great power, it also has the right to break the rules sometimes.
1: Absolutely. And then the fundamental question is, uh, can the United States coincide with other fully independent great powers who also make exceptions for themselves. Yeah.
0: That, in some ways, is the biggest question for not even called strategic stability, but for geopolitics in the first half of the Absolutely. 21st century.
1: And in the Russian perception, uh, we have the dispute between Russia and the United States precisely about that, mm-hmm. which is the future of international order, which is yeah. the role of Russia and the United States in this international right. order. Right. And let's not forget about China. And, and China too, of course. Yeah. And there's no longer just the dispute between the Russia and the United States, but also the U.S. and China. Russia and China want to uh, to be legitimate global independent great powers that mm-hmm. uh, that should have these exceptions from the rules that should be uh, that should enjoy a right to conduct a domestic politics as they want right mm-hmm. or as their leaders want uh, here and now whereas the united states still considers itself as the universalist model and you know uh struggles for preservation of its global leadership
0: yeah i mean the us is you know, we, we argue sometimes who's a revisionist power? You're a revisionist. No, you're a right. revisionist. But <laughs> it, at the level of the global system, I mean, the U.S. is a status quo power because the post-Cold War order has worked very well for the United States. Yes. Um, it maybe hasn't worked as well for some other countries, including Russia. Um, and therefore, Russia seeks to change it. And whether the U.S. will be able to stop that or accommodate that, I mean, that's really what the future of this relationship only, is
1: about. Yeah, Russia is a revisionist power only if we recognize that the... Uh, model of international order that the united states wanted to strengthen to universalize mm-hmm. after the end of the uh, uh, cold war was order yeah, well, but russia it's... never recognized <laughs> this that or, you no know, mm-hmm. order mm-hmm. even using the mm-hmm. um, uh, the liberal school of international relations re- um, uh, definition order is uh, a system of rules and norms which are which accepted, are accepted. Yeah, and Russia never accepted the Mm -hmm. U.S. leadership. Mm -hmm. Russia never accepted the position of a junior partner Mm -hmm. uh, vis-a-vis the Mm -hmm. West and vis-a-vis NATO-centric European security system and so on and so forth. And a system which is not recognized, which is not accepted by such a powerful country as Russia, and the same with China. China tacitly mm-hmm. and silently this. Uh, uh, dis- China dis- has uh, agreed uh,
0: with some aspects of it and disagreed with others, and yes. now uh, you know, some of that seems to be changing. Uh, Russia too,
1: by the way. Russia did accept the... Uh, b- b- before sanctions became such a universalist uh, tool of the U.S. foreign policy, Russia did accept the U.S.-led global economic system and global economic order as the order. Russia mm-hmm. didn't accept the political side. But the fact that... Great powers, some great powers fail to accept the order as order, uh, you know, um, creates problems in in defining that as, as order. This is why Russia claimed that the U.S. is the re- revisionist power. Right. But I fully understand um, the, the, the U.S. narrative that Russia and China yeah. are the revisionist powers. Problem is, uh, you know, that uh, we need to overcome this struggle about the future of international order uh, uh, and about the roles of ourselves in this international order without outright and open war. Yeah, that's I think that's the major challenge right. uh, of as U.S. As... Russian and the U.S.-Chinese relations, which actually brought us brings us to the importance of strategic stability because strategic stability now is about uh, is about avoiding war mm-hmm. between between the U.S. and Russia and the U.S. and China, not yes. just nuclear, but any war. Right.
0: I and mean, historically, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the end of the Cold War is the great exception. But historically, the emergence of new systems of order has been the product of large-scale confrontations. Right. Um, and given the fact that we live in the nuclear age and the age of all these other exotic weapons that we've been talking about, that's right. a dangerous prospect to think about. So on Absolutely. that wonderful note, uh, Dima, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Jeff. My pleasure.
0: All right. Thank you for joining us. That's it for our show today. Uh, There is a link to Dimitri's bio in the show notes. uh, And there's also a link to the video of the public event uh, that he did at CSIS. Um, If you haven't done so already, of course, uh, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can do the same uh, and subscribe on Google Play or on SoundCloud. Uh, Sign up, enjoy, listen, spread the word. Uh, Also, uh, another reminder to send us your mailbag questions. We're going to do another mailbag segment here uh, in the next couple episodes of Russian Roulette. You can uh, send your questions to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, and you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. Uh, Finally, of course, big, big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. Uh, That includes, first and foremost, our research associate program manager, uh, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thank you for listening. Uh, Talk to you again in two weeks.